Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson, scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years, here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To 53342. New York, call the 24 7 Hope Line at 1 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y for 67369. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. edition of the bomb podcast i am not a mean i am naima cochran better known as the senior pastor of wednesday service that is here on the bomb feed and i'm in conversation with jerv and trey tonight we're talking about the premiere of abc's the soul of a nation which is a first of its kind programming event six episodes of a series that is specifically about and by black people in America. So this first episode was just the beginning, but I want to get you guys' thoughts. First of all, on the fact that this is the first time, like I had to go back and do some research. This is the first time there's been a a news magazine series, right? Not just the two-part, you know, 2020 special or you know, a PBS three-part special, but like an entire six series, I mean, six episode series that is specifically about Blackness in America. What do you think about that, first of all, that it's taken us till 2020 to have this? Oh, it's ridiculous. But I mean, I'm not surprised at this point, you know, it's, it's moving the goalposts, but this shouldn't be anything that really puts us up in arms or want to throw a party or something to be 
proud of. It's it, it's something that is embarrassing on, of this country and should have been changed a long time ago. But I mean, again, it's the same thing as having a first black president or a madam, you know, you know, vice uh, president, vice president oh. and, and, and what and what nation like anything else that you kind of put in that in that scenario of a first. Why are we having first 60, 70 years out down the line when this stuff should right. have been, you know, out of the way? But, you know, um, again, very, very informative stuff. You know, we, we, we jumped in immediately with Harry Dunn. And uh, he gave his point of view of, you know, in his perspective of what was going on in the Capitol. And, you know, no matter if you're doing your job or not, you're still, you know, an N-word yeah. in America. I think, I think starting with Harry Dunn was crucial because for me, at least January 6th, and I think the title is apt, although um, at some point, I think somebody, a narrator or whoever actually needs to say outright that the reason we're calling it the soul of a nation is because the soul of America is racism. And the reason we can't get past racism is because nobody wants to talk about the fact, nobody meaning white people, wants to talk about the fact that it, it is so embedded um, in the American consciousness, in the way American was, America was built, in the ideas that our framers had, in the American economy, and everything about America, right? It, there, is a, there is a bedrock of racism underneath it. So if we won't confront it, we can't get past it. And I think January 6th for a lot of us was that on display, like full out illustration, like the best possible example we could show anybody of, this is how much white people feel like we are not part of this country. Like they are so you know, they are so fiercely holding on to their ownership of this country that they are going to actually subvert the democracy because they're not getting their election results. So, Jerv, what was your thought on on Harry being the opener for this? So I thought it was super dope um, having him open it up. It was timely. Uh, it just made sense. I'm one of those individuals that still has not um, fully processed how crazy um that day was at was the Capitol. Insane. It was insane for a it was, country. It's ridiculous. As progressive as ours, insane. It was Alleged. embarrassing. It was super. embarrassing also, yes. Super embarrassing, right? And like whenever someone references it or whenever, especially when I saw him up there, it just brings it back. And then I go through that process again. It's just like, damn, I cannot believe that that happened or whatever the case may be. I think it's super duper wild, but I'm not shocked that it's 2021 or you know when it was created in 2020 right 2020 no 2021 because that was january 2021 that was january oh, God, 6 yeah. bro <laughs> my bad yeah <laughs> time, time is, is flying though time yeah. is flying bro but i think it's crazy it's crazy that it's 2021 and we're getting like trey like you said like we're just getting the first of something of this nature or whatever the case may be when i first heard it i was like oh no that can't be true because you know there had to be and then you go through stuff in your mind it's like well no nah, this wow, this actually is the first. So I think it was, I think it was, I think it was well done. Um, I love that they started off with him. Um, his story needs to be told and it doesn't need to be told by you, myself or anybody else. It, it needs to be told by him because he heard, he saw things that, you know, no one else would know actually happened regardless of what you see or someone's Instagram page or anything. Yeah. And I think it was important to note that, you know, he's saying I got called a nigga but basically defending 
the seat of the country, right? Literally defending the seat of democracy, defending the democratic process, and people are calling him a nigga for just doing his job in defense of our country. And I think that's so much of our story as Black people. Um, you know, I, I'll, I've said before that I always find it interesting how the right, the extreme right, use um, our troops and our military service as kind of like code language, but I don't know a single person who's been, who is Black, who's been in America more than two generations, whose family's been here more than two generations, that doesn't have service people in their immediate family. Like, that's always been our story. And even if you want to go back to, you know, the um, the post-war boom, the GI Bill, et cetera, like so much of what established white wealth now, or at least of a solid white middle class now with post-war efforts, are, we didn't, we weren't able to take advantage of that, even though mm -hmm. it was due to us. And I think that, you know, I want to use that to kind of jump into the other big topic of tonight, which was reparations. Um, I think that Sterling Brown said something that I've always thought. Black people actually are probably the most patriotic people because even though we get angry at this country, the reason we get angry is because we believe in the promise. Like day by day, we we move forward with the hope that the promise of America is somehow going to be, you know, is somehow going to come to fruition for us. Like we are probably the most invested in the promise of what America is compared to how America has actually treated us. So Evanston, Illinois is, is actually, you know, looking at a form of reparations in their town, because at this point, it's not just about slavery, it's even about that gap I was talking about in the mid-century between homeownership and redlining and wealth. And um, if you've never read ta Coates' A Case for Reparations, um, please Google it. It is a very lengthy read. It is an outstanding read, like how he hasn't turned it into a full novel yet. I don't know, but it's, it's perfect. Um, and, it, and it's so eye-opening. But they are now finding a way to take money from revenue from um, legal marijuana sales, which is, this makes perfect sense to me, to apply towards a $25,000 payment towards every Black family in the town. And, and that's one of the biggest, I want to say maybe the biggest conversation of, of the night tonight was a, about that and how it can be a model for the country. So either one of you guys, what did you think of that? Man, I the promise that, I mean, that's the same thing. I think it's been instilled in us from, you know, our elders in general, you know, from the stuff that they dealt with to seeing, you know, the, the growth in the country, as far as like, again, things that we're supposed to be throwing confetti for and said, Oh, but look, we got the first black president. I didn't never think I would live to see this or, Oh, I didn't know we can drink out of the water fountain. Like things that are supposed to be normal. These are the promise. And when you see these little tallies kind of stroke against the wall in the situation, you're like, ah, that's the promise. They keep, you know, see if you, you keep living, things right. are going to continue to get better. And I, think, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that's the black hope you know, going in that situation. And you got some radical people that just like, forget that. We're just going to take what we we need and and go about it that way. So again, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, again, like you say, we're super patriotic and, and in a situation, although we have been, you know, done wrong in this country, you know, we still find a way to say we love this country. And, you know, 
you know, for people to even be like, go back to Africa. <laughs> like, right. that's a crazy term. Like, like go back if, to Italy, motherfucker. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's like, if, yeah, like if I, if I go back to Africa, I'm like, bro, I don't know where, I don't know nothing about out here. <laughs> what you telling me, bro? Right. Um, Derp, what did you think of, of, or what do you think of, first of all, Evanston's, you know, attempt at, at their form of reparations. Cause I mean, let's, let's be real in terms of reparations. I think one of the biggest problems is that it's been so long. It's been hundreds of years that to actually try to quantify an amount and determine who gets it is damn near impossible, which is why I think people don't even know where to start. It should have been addressed like earlier in the decade. The reason they were able to do it with the, um, the victims of Japanese internment camps, et cetera, is because they addressed it like within decades, like there's a, there's a list, there's a number, there's a finite number of people. Here's what we're going to do. Um, but Jeff, what did, what did you think about that conversation? So my, uh, I'm glad you said that because like my first thought was, wow, 25, 25,000, that seemed kind of light. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I separated myself. I, I'm like, all right, you know, it, it would be any number that they say, like, no one's going to, majority of people are going to be like, yo, that's light. Or that doesn't yeah. make sense. They could say any number. They could literally so, be like, we give each of you a million dollars and people like, that's whatever. That's not, that's that's not, that's not enough. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I do think it's, I, but I, I think it's cool. Cool is probably not even right through. I think it's a step in the right direction that mm -hmm. there's at least some sort of number or amount or something that someone's come up with that says, Hey, let's, this is where we should start at. Right. So I, I, I like that. Um, but it's kind of like what you said, we've been like, we've, our, our people have, have just always been hopeful, right? The entire time, you know, whether it's your, 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 your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your great grandparents, if you're blessed enough to, uh, to have met them, you know what I'm saying? Like, we've all been hopeful. We've all bought into this dream. So part of me is like, that sounds cool, but I got to see it. Right. Like right. I got to see the ball go in the hoop before I'm, you know, willing to be like, all right, it's a made bucket. Right. Like right. I can't, I can't just lock in on it because it, to me, it's just something that someone said and until I see it actually happen or someone actually get it. So like she was saying, like, I, um, I'm, I'll be super duper hype for the first person. Hell, like I would love to pull up and celebrate with the first person. Right. It gets reparations because at least that person becomes the symbol of, hey, this person got it. Stay the course. Everybody, you know, you know, everybody stay the course. We good. We're going to get this. And now, we, and now we have a working model, right? Like, because I do think that's the biggest part of it is that, like I said, I think expecting federations to come from like a federal level down to like every black person at this point. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's possible, right? But if we start reparations from, a conversation about home ownership and wealth building from like you know the the 50s onwards you know and 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 which is the approach that Evanston is kind of taking looking at redlining and and the blocking the past to um to home ownership and 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 the wealth distribution that is something that you know state by state county by county city by city people can take a look at and actually do like a real tracing because you know Illinois, uh, major cities in Illinois or cities with largely black populations in Illinois are some still some of the highest segregated, you know, cities in the country, the same for Missouri, um, etc. So you can literally look at almost every major city and look at the line like a dividing line between like the black 
people and the white people. So I do think it's a it's a smart starting point. I understand though people being doubtful, but I also think it was really interesting that the concept that it is that reparations is the only legislative path we have towards any kind of because I don't want to say justice, justice is too big a word, but any kind of restoration, you know, for the 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 division um of of wealth and and for the for the systematic like restraints that black people have had on us. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. I think that was interesting. Um I do want to close because, you know, again, this is just one night of many. Um, I want to say shout out to John Legend. I see you, John. Uh, um, Former client. Uh, I just want to close by saying uh, one of the greatest questions uh, asked tonight, and Trey, you brought this up too, and I was thinking about it. When was the first time you knew you were Black? And I think that's such a powerful question because it's, I think... um, what I'm hoping, first of all, I'm hoping that white people are watching this and I'm hoping they watch all six episodes. That's A, because this isn't for us, right? That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that one of the conversations I had often with white people last year in the in the wake of the uprising, and I've had over time, honestly, especially when I get pulled into diversity conversations or conversations about um, how organizations or groups can can better, you know, be inclusive, et cetera, is that Black people are consciousness of, our, Black folks are consciousness of our Blackness all the time, every waking moment. It is factored into every single thing we do. Every move we make, there is a, there is an awareness of what's the ratio in this room? You know, how am I going to come across? What's the perception what what level of the dial do I need to hit? Because we have we have at home us, we have in public us, and there's variations in between, right? Um, so there, so the like ally fatigue that people were facing this summer, you know, during the uprisings and the protests, we have we have a version of that fatigue just in our inherent living. Every day, every day. And and we talk about it all day, every day. I told somebody, everybody, every black person, you know, has a group chat somewhere where they're talking about all the shit they couldn't say in the meeting on that conference call. Like we process this all day, every day. So, but that idea that there was a first time you realized you were different, that you realized you weren't the same. I think that's a really powerful concept. So, Jerv, I'll go to you first. Do you have that memory? Was there a first time you knew you were black? Hundred um, percent. I went to predominantly white schools all all the way until I went to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember vividly. Um, it was either first or second grade. I forget the exact year, but we were outside on the playground, and I'm probably one of four black kids within my entire grade. Everyone's outside playing. No one has any issues with anybody. And I remember, um, I actually forget her last name. I would say her whole entire name if I could, but her name is Emily. She, we were playing and, um, I guess whatever game we were playing, she, it was, it came down to some type of interaction between the two of us. Now, mind you, again, we're only in first or second grade. She literally turned to me and said, 
my parents said I can't play with people that look like you. Wow. Now, I'm now mind you again, we're outside at recess, right? It's probably the sunniest day, but if in my mind, this story is it got super gloomy at this point, and I I, I feel like a storm just came. Mm-hmm. I was lost. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, I remember coming home, talking to my parents, letting my uh my my parents know what happened. My mom is super, you know, my mom is born in Barbados, um, so she has this Caribbean uh, kindness to her. She's like one of those individuals that if she won a ton of money that if, you know, everyone says, oh, I'd get back to this and I do this. My mom would literally do that. My pop, nah, my pop is from (laughs) Philly. He spent some time in the D or whatever the case may be. So my pop pulled me to the side. Basically, basically, (laughs) right? Like he pulled me to the side, he hollered at me. And um, I just remember, um, I don't know if it was that moment, but I know for me, that moment was it for me. But for my dad, I feel like it was that moment where he realized, yo, like I got to make sure I put him on to game. So like, again, always going to these these uh, predominantly white schools. So I'm the kid when we learned about Christopher Columbus in school, right? And the teacher's telling us everything. I'm the kid that's raising his hand. But now my dad said that when he got back, you know, this, that, and the third, or, you know, all those type things. So like, you know, I, I feel like that moment me sharing that, that that moment happening to me made me realize what it was for me. It had some, it had some, some effects on me and just how I functioned as a kid and, and how I acted in that school and the way I thought for a while, like ways that I'm like, I'm even embarrassed to say that I thought like, I, I thought that I was less like real, real talk. I thought I was less. Um, I thought that, I thought that me being light skinned helped me. Right. I felt like I true, true, true fact. I thought like I was just better because at least I wasn't as as dark right yeah and I mean and then you know as I got older obviously more more aware learn things and stuff like that but not like yeah she she said it to me it was on the playground I was hurt and like what's funny about that is that that you just said you thought being light can help you is that one of the first thoughts I have was like damn she said that to you and you yellow like I used to use an orange crayon to color myself in school like, <laughs> so you was out here looking like uh one of Sesame Street characters <laughs> basically <laughs> uh, crazy um what about you Trey um so I had two experiences uh 93 during the riots Mm, uh, I was right. going to like the liquor store and I was getting followed around the store. Um, really wasn't understanding it because I mean, I got money in my hand. It's evident, but you know, I'm getting followed around as if I was going to steal from this liquor store. Um, so, you know, I, I went home and I asked my grandma, like, why was that happening? And she was just like, you know, you know, it's, it's just how the world is. And, you know, some people are ignorant and, and that's what it is. And then of age, I think I was 15. Um, I had, uh, I went to a camp and then, uh, one of the coaches was like, you know, uh, I'm going to take you to the, you know, take you to, uh, this banquet thing. And for the banquet, we were getting on the elevator and the lady clenched, clenched her purse. Wow. And I'm, you know, at this point I'm 15 years old, but I'm kind of, kind of tall. And I don't think I look like a grown man yet. And in this situation, it was just like, why would you do that? Like, I don't want your purse. I have nothing to do with it. But, you know, those are the, the, the tough pills to swallow. And, you know, at 36 now, you know, I've had multiple occasions and just kind of just had to just accept the way the world is, you know, and kind of adapt and, and make the right decisions to keep myself out of trouble and, and, and survive to make it home. 
my um my experience was kind of like uh Angela Rise where she said you know there was there was so much of a representation of blackness in her home there was never a time that she wasn't aware um my family is a great migration family southern everybody my grandparents generation moved to new york after college so my mom grew up here my father was a military brat um my stepfather grew up here here being new york um H all HBCU family. I was one of the first people in my immediate family actually to not go to an HBCU. And that was my boyfriend's fault at the time, not mine. But um, but uh, I don't know of a time when I wasn't aware of my blackness, even though from nurse after nursery school, um, at the time we lived in Alabama, I went to nursery school on Tuskegee University's campus. But aside from that, like um, Russell Nursery, shout out to Russell Nursery. Um, but aside from that, I, I also went to predominantly white schools like my entire career up to college at University of South Carolina. But two, there were two things. What I realized very early is that I was considered a different black girl because um, of my hair, because of my intelligence. I was always in like advanced and honors, you know, classes. Um, we're in the South. I didn't have an accent like that because um, everybody in my family was, you know, spent most of their time in the North. Um, and I realized early, I didn't so much get that you have to be twice as good to go half as far conversation. It was more like you smarter than them know that right? That was the conversation. So I realized early that I could, that code switching was a way to game the system. Um, and I could use it to my advantage, right? So I use that exception, that like kind of exceptional, oh, they don't see me as the same kind of black as they view those other people to get away with a lot of shit, like shoplifting, like all kind, like whatever. I just, I, I was like that nobody's paying attention to me the way they're gonna watch this other person over here. Um, you know, on with professors, with like all the way up through young adulthood. And what broke it for me was, and what, and the first time I really realized what I was doing was I got pulled over in South Carolina and I had like ponytail glasses, like I had like a little banana Republic blazer. Like I look like a very preppy black girl, but there was a drug sweep in um, the county where my parents lived. And my mom's car was the same as like this drug dealer they were looking for. And I could not believe the aggressiveness with which the officer was handling me. Cause I was kind of like, do you see, like, do you see me? Do you hear, do you hear my voice? You know, I, I really was shocked. And I, and that's when I had to kind of snap out of it. Like, now nah, you still, you're still a black girl now. Like, you know, and that, but that was also the first time that I realized I expected to be, it was really, I guess, kind of a, um, a respectability thing. I realized I expected to be treated differently because I could, I could flip a switch and carry myself a certain way. Right. And, and that was a real reality check for me about my own behavior, not just about how I was, how I was aware that I was being treated differently. It was, a, it was a reality check for me that I was taking advantage of it in that way. But even now, you know, there is still, sometimes I do still like to, to show that, um, to pull the code switch just because it surprises people. And that's what, that's what is amazing to me is that white folks are really surprised when you know white shit. Like we don't live in a country that's based on white shit. And I say this, know this to our white 
viewers and listeners out there. I'm just saying is the reality. The mainstream is the mainstream of everything. The default of everything in America is for from the white perspective and for white consumption. So we have lived in this country or for however many years and the majority of what we consume in media, the majority of what we hear on the radio, the majority of the news perspective, the majority of what we see, everything is based on whiteness. So the surprise when you know references for pop culture, mainstream, et cetera, and they're like, oh, you know that? Yeah, of course we know this on, this is what's on TV, dog. Why would I not know it? You know, this is what's in the movies. Why would I not know it? Um, I take a little pleasure out of that shock moment sometimes. Um, but we are going to wrap up on that question, um, unless Jerv, Trey, do you guys have any other thoughts? No, I think, I think you hit it on the nail. I mean, yeah. I'm looking forward to the next episode. This has been an interesting conversation. I'm very, very, very tuned in to where this goes and who they invite onto the show to get their opinions and their experiences. And I think it's very helpful for you know, uh, all of all Americans, all the world in general to tune in and learn and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and pretty much, you know, digest this, the, the lifestyles of what people are facing daily. You know what I mean? Right. Not just, not just during black history or buying black or, you know, hopping on these, these, these cliche challenges or whatever it may be, right. but putting yourself in a friend, a neighbor, you know, uh, a spouse, uh, you know, a aunt, mm-hmm. whatever it may be in their shoes and understanding and trying to view it out their eyes because it's two Americas, clearly. There's and, two Americas. And, and people will never experience it if, you know, because that's just how it is, you know, and yeah. it's unfortunate, but no, nah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. As in my, um, Jerv, you have any last thoughts? Um, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I just want to shout every person, whether it's known or not, who had a hand in this, all the people that were in the room when the idea was pitched that probably may have got a couple eye rolls or whatever the case may be, but they pushed and they fought for it. So uh, shout them out. And uh, I'm, I'm super looking forward to, you know, next week and, and, and the following weeks to come. So this is going to be on every Tuesday on AB, on ABC 10 p.m. Eastern. Again, it's six weeks total, so we have a month and some change to go. Um, I'm also interested in seeing what what the other narratives are that they choose to to examine over the next few weeks because, you know, 2020 created an opportunity for us to have some frank conversations about race that many of us have been hoping to have for quite some time, but nobody was really willing to have below a very surface level and even now some of them are very surface but i think this is a an attempt to continue the dialogue in a real way uh so to speak but also to again invite other people to the black perspective because it for us it's more than just data points and statistics it's great if you know about you know the the gaps in incarceration rates and recidivism rates and you know what's going on in the family court system and you know police brutality etc but what do you actually know about black life and what do you actually know about the black experience outside of just um you know police brutality 
economy, crime, et cetera. Like, what do you actually know about, about Blackness? Because more of us have been in your intimate family settings than you have in ours, right? So I'm hoping that this also goes into just like some general um, examination of the Black experience, period, aside from just those systematic barriers that have that have held us back because I believe I think that's too often the public framing of our narrative and there is more than that um to our experience in our story so on behalf of Count the Dings on behalf of Bomb we thank you for hanging out with us to talk about the first night of the soul of a nation we hope that you'll continue to watch for the next um five weeks I'm sure we'll be touching on it on all the respective shows as it comes up, and a reminder that you can watch all of our programming and or listen wherever you find podcasts under Count the Dings and Bomb or on YouTube under Count the Dings. And we will see y'all next time.